Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Kyle Carpenter Podcast. Hey, Amity. What's up, brother? What's going on? Man, it's, uh, I can't really describe today, to be honest. I just, uh, you're the man. I wanted to just thank you for having me here. It's been a fascinating and heartbreaking day. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, talking about just your journey personally, but also, and to kick this off, um, not to be too heavy, but this is a very powerful moment right now yeah. because we're doing this podcast after getting introduced yeah. by a great guy named Matt Cranston. Yeah. And I met him for the first time five months ago or so yeah. uh, last fall. And he told me all about you. He's like, man, this guy's awesome. You got to talk to him. He's got the craziest story. Yeah. And he was so happy and just, you know, the life of the party and, you know, kept me laughing all night and just, you know, just a good heart. Um, and ironically, we're doing this podcast today and he took his life within the past 24 hours or yeah. so. Um so with that said, tell us a little bit about Matt and the person he was. Yeah, Matt is, uh, it's kind of crazy to, to how to describe Matt. Uh, Matt Creston, me and Matt Creston went to TBI clinic together. And um, he was uh, one of the most fun individuals you could ever meet in your whole life. Um, super in, uh, fun individual. And I... I basically was touched by this guy, um, how awesome he was. And he, he refused. He came out of Iraq in 2004, and he refused to go anywhere and do anything. His whole life was changed in 2004 in Iraq due to the trauma he endured in his deployment. It was a very violent year in Iraq. There was a lot of action going on. There was not a lot of bases set up, so it was like similar to Afghanistan, kind of you're like with an element in the middle of nowhere. And... um then he came home, he let go of the girl he was with, and he went off the grid for 20 years. And he came out of the grid of a farm in Oregon um, when we both went to TBI clinic in 2022 on January 2022, January 3rd is when we arrived. And me and him went for two weeks, and there was nobody else, just me and Matt Creston. And... I was dealing with a lot of personal issues in my life. I was stuck at a lot of problems and dealing with a lot of issues and mental breakdowns and everything and health problems, everything you can imagine. And, and uh, Matt was almost like the person that God has sent to make that change in my life. And he would refuse to go to treatment until he was told to, that I was going. And then he showed up with me and... I would say we had the best time of our lives in those two weeks. We had a great time. We went to all Middle Eastern restaurants in Texas and toured around. He took me to all these barbecue joints in Texas, introduced me to his culture, introduced him to mine. And we had a great time uh, together. We went to a CrossFit gym and we made sure a, a CrossFit coach who was really hot looking CrossFit coach girl <laughs> kick his ass in the middle of the thing. And I kept laughing and giving him a hard time about the girl. And I, and her, I think her name was Dora. And every time he was down on the ground, all I remember is I turn around, I see Matt in the ground, can't move. And I see Dora next to him doing burpees. 
And I was looking, I said, hey, man, I thought you were tough. I said, here you are, you got killed by Dora. And, <laughs> and uh, he, he's, he's such a wonderful person, man. And uh, I made fun of him so much. I laughed with him so much. And the one beautiful thing about Mike Cranston is he did not waste his time to tell me how I should change my life. He said it the way it is. And he's a very foggy person. Like he would say it in the most worst way possible, but it's actually the truth. And he said it to me and he said, um, you know, you got to get out of this. I don't care what it takes. You got to get out of this. You got to be okay. You got to get yourself to be safe. You got to live your life. You got to do this. And I, without him, I wouldn't have done it. I'll be honest. I, he was the first person I picked up the phone and called and I said, look, I got to do something. I'm not going to be able to stay here and, and not do anything to improve myself. And I need to do something. And he, he was on my life. So I got to tell you, man, um, when... We spoke 24 hours for him of him shooting himself. We um, were in touch every single day. We talked to one another. He was the kind of guys you just call, he'd pick up the phone. You, you have no, you were never gonna be secondary. And he unfortunately um, was dealing with a lot of tough things. And, and obviously it's kind of crazy to say he has lived the best year of his life. Um, he got himself fixed. He went out and did things that he hasn't done in a long time. He got a job. He started working. He started seeing a girl he really likes. Uh, we definitely resurrected the real Matt back. Not 100% the same one who was around in 2004. But we resurrected Matt, and Matt was just a happy soul. He touched everybody in his own way. Um, and last thing I would say is I'm not judging. I would never judge somebody. Uh, for I know it's not the solution. It's not the way. Veteran suicide is absolutely the easy way out of this. And if you're a tough fighter, if you're somebody who served, you should know that's not what we do under pressure. Uh, we don't shoot ourselves in the middle of a firefight when we're under pressure. We fight back. And this is no different than what it is we have done in combat. Yes, you're alone, but you do have your buddies, you do have your people that's out there for you. So, yeah, so I'm not judging him and I hand him to God and he's now in God's hands and I uh, absolutely miss him and live by his code and live by his, uh, live to live to honor his name. And I could tell you, man, his last words to me is, how is your business going? And everything's been doing great in my business. And I shared it with him in a phone call right away when he texted me that. I called him and shared it with him. So I'm going to just live to continue to do what I do for Matt and for anybody out there that needs the help. Yeah, that's beautiful. And he kept bothering you to uh, get on the podcast with me. So uh, He absolutely uh, asked me a few times. He utilized help. He called some uh, one of the guys, Travis. He said, let's get him to contact Kyle and all that. And we're, we were just kind of doing it, going back and forth. And literally I told him, when you called me and everything, I called him and I said, hey, Kyle is going to make it. He was so happy. He goes, that's so fucking awesome. That's what he said. <laughs> so yeah, man, he was so excited. I know he's looking up, down at us and probably happy that this bit worked out and we got to meet. But again, that's what Matt does. That's what Matt does. He absolutely do, do, do great things. That's all he does. 
he'd do very great things. He, he barely does for himself, but he does a lot for others. Well, I'm thankful he connected us, and yeah. I'm thankful he had a good, a good last year, yeah. and it never gets any easier when we get the news about our fellow veterans and those we served with. Yeah. You know, but if you're out there and listening to this, just like Hamity said, you know, life is the next mission, you know, after time and service. And, and we talked about this on your podcast this morning. Yeah. But if you're still here, not only be thankful for that, yeah. but understand that everyone you served with, yeah. everyone volunteered to raise their right hand. Yeah. Everyone was where they wanted and needed to be. And it's natural to look back and to ask why or to have that survivor's guilt. And that is okay. Those are completely normal reactions. But also, you know, understand that you are still here. So use that to help heal you by using your life that you still have to continue to remember and say their names to talk about their sacrifice, to look after their family. You know, your service is a part of you, but it doesn't define you. So if you're struggling, first of all, it's okay. You know, get help, take the time you need, but just know, even if it's inch-long steps, just keep moving forward. And just know that you can crawl out of that darkness and that there are people that love and care about you. And there are people that need you. You look at it this way, that we all had these dark times in our life as well. You know, if we made it out, so as they, so as they, they could do that the same. Um, um, I kind of discovered a lot about myself, honestly, recently, even when Matt passed away and everything. But I, I look at it, for me, I'm different. Warm, warm was my normal environment. I was born and raised there. And chaos was just my normal. I didn't know what normal is. I didn't know what anything else meant. Um, so war was just my everyday environment, and I was used to it. So it does hit me hard, not going to lie. You know, I'm not, I'm at the end of the day, I'm a human being, and I've been through a lot. But uh, at the end of the day, I, I do feel that, um, that uh, it's, there's a way out, right? Mm-hmm. And, um I got a friend that once said to me, he says, uh, she said a verse from the Bible. She said, uh, you don't know what I'm doing now, but someday you will. I once from a point in my life thought, you know, this was the end for me and that I will end up, you know, be gone. And I realized there got to be a way out. Like God has kind of put things for you in a place and somehow and that some way, somehow that it's a stage and it's a transition. As I said previously, uh, we're going to go through tough stages. That's what warfighters do. They go through battles. They go through coming home, which is a lot worse and more difficult. They go through injuries. They go through recoveries. You're going to face different stages, and you need to be quit. Uh, You can't stop at a certain stage. So that's why I'm doing something this year about veteran suicide, and I want to end that, and I want to make sure we save as many as possible. Well, speaking of your journey and tough times, I'm so glad that we're sitting here and you are safe (laughs) and free in America. Yes. Yeah. After everything you have been through, how do you feel just sitting here right now? 
honestly, um, I'll tell you this, that it's a freedom is extremely valuable when you don't have it. You know, freedom is extremely valuable, like diamond that you had in your life. If you have freedom in your life, you have a big blessing in your life. And I could tell you that freedom spoiled me in a way, right? Because I came to this country and I had no one chasing after me, no one wanted to kill me, and just trying to live my life, enjoy my day. And, uh, but I remember all the like, times in Iraq going back through my childhood to everything, you know? I now see an American child living his life at 12 years old. And I look back and I'm like, I was in a political prison when I was his age. I was getting tortured by big monsters in Saddam prisons. I was being hit and treated as an enemy of the state. And that, you know, shows me how appreciative I am today that I am, I have a child that is not living the same childhood that I lived. So I'm extremely understanding now and, and everything that, you know, a freedom might not be perfect here. You know, sometimes you're going to have people that's going to be on your nerve, people you're going to disagree with. But if you look at it overall, it's the one thing or the reason why we're all been, why we're all having that conversation, while we're all disagreeing with one another, while we're all doing what we're doing. Because in some other countries, like where I was born and grew up, freedom is not an option. You know, freedom in those countries is death. You talk, you open your mouth, you're going to die. And that's the only way you can free yourself from that society is death. So... Freedom in America is extremely important, valuable asset that we have here. People are probably rewinding right now trying to hear what you just said again. But you mentioned that at 12 years old, yeah, you were thrown in prison. And just no. so people know, you were born, you grew up in Iraq under Saddam's regime and him controlling the government and really all aspects of society would you say all aspects of society i mean yeah i mean uh, politically I, economically yeah saddam has res- absolutely conquered and controlled iraq a hundred percent and so and so what was that like just every day you know waking up in that life and under that control i'll tell you that um iraq was a very police society um that society was just absolutely controlled. I mean, imagine Saddam Hussein have created over 35 intelligent agencies to spy on his own people alone. Saddam was so fascinated with how he can spy on every single person that worked for him. There was nobody in Saddam's land or country at the time that was not being watched. Or Saddam has created a culture in Iraq. And later on in life, when I grew up and I went through the war and everything, I realized where that culture come from. Saddam was very inspired by Stalin, read all his books. What does Saddam do when he goes to war with Iran? He executed all his generals that didn't win battles. You go back in history and you look, that's exactly what Stalin had done. And Saddam pretty much was the resurrection of Stalin in Iraq. And he believed in the same ideology. He was very close with the communist 
And he was a very big friend of Fidel Castro. And that was his ways. He is a mix of a Middle Eastern dictator, a communist leader, and, and a, life was hard, man. Life was not easy. Iraq was under sanctions. Food was limited. Clothing was limited. Um, everything was limited. Uh, people lived on assistance. They will give you extra amount of money uh, every, you know, like every, uh, they'll give you extra amount of food like every once in a while and they gave you some lentils, rice, and bread and that's how you kind of survive because when Iraq was put under sanctions, that's when people really realize what hunger is and things were pretty tough during the 90s. It was not easy, man. And one day I was walking out of middle school and I would walk miles to get home. And uh, a police officer who was a regime member. So there's two different things when you say a police officer. There are people in the country who are regime members, like Ba'ath Party members. The Ba'ath Party is Saddam Hussein political party. And these people have the most authoritarian authority you could ever see. They could be teachers. They could be uh, anything. And he asked me um, if I had any cigarettes. Teenagers smoked at the time. That was a, a normal thing. And I said, no, I don't. And then he, I said, do you have any money in your pocket? And he had two other guards with him. But the guards didn't look anything like him. He looked more sharper. He sounded different. He spoke different. You could tell that it's a bridging member. He's a bath party member. And what were the other two? Uh, regular, regular police officers. Oh, okay. Yeah, he looked different. He dressed different. Something about the Bathists in Iraq. They got away for themselves. It's less more like the communists. They got away. You can tell they are, right? They look very authoritarian because the Ba'ath Party controls everything. The Ba'ath Party was able to execute and kill people and make decisions on try, be, putting, without putting me on trial. So no, that, no accountability. No accountability. They don't care. The Ba'ath Party is the, above all. So, you know, I refused to give him my money. I ended up getting slapped in the face. I cursed him back. That was a big deal in our culture. And he put me in the car, drove to the Iraqi Ministry of Interior, put me on, a, on the car, went inside, wrote a report, and signed the report. I came out. There were people with bats in their hands. I had no idea where I was. I was hoping that I would go home after this. And then he put me inside of a prison with like 400 people in a warehouse. And I was only 12. I have my books in my hands. And... He put me in there, and uh, it took me about four weeks. It took me about a day to let my family know where I was. I had some money left in my socks, and I have actually give it to one of the guards who was cleaning the commander's office at night, and there was a landline, and they can't track who really used the landline, but he would call, so I gave him our house number, and he called, and I was hoping my family would answer. Came back, told me my, your brother answered the phone, right? And my family knew. My family started putting money together on the outside, negotiating. So was it bribes only that could have got you out of that yes. situation? Yeah, bribes is the only way to get you out because if they don't, your papers get submitted to the Bath Party Supreme Leader or a Supreme Judge, and then he could execute you. Doesn't matter how old you are. Because he didn't write on his report that I was a child that I was a 12-year-old, refused to give his money. He wrote, this is a guy that tried to assassinate me while on duty. 
So when I was being interrogated, I was being asked, which group are you with? And I'm like, which group? I'm with the... Uh, middle school. <laughs> middle school, sex, sex class. And they're like, no, I know. Which group are you with or associated with? And I said, I mean, I don't know what you mean. And they like, group, you know, the people are entitled the government. And I said, I don't even know what the government is. I'm 12. I got three, four books. Like, what are you trying to pin on me? Man, they will start torturing you. And I'll say yes. I said yes a few times to things I didn't know what they meant. It was a rough time. I tell you, man, a 12-year-old, go in. Um, what, what were you thinking? I mean, what, what was your thought process? I thought I wasn't going to leave out of there. And even when I left, um, I thought I was gonna, it was getting worse because usually they will take me to the other side of the prison when they get me out of that door. And this time I went back the way I came in and I was scared like they were going to kill me or do something to me. I remember they opened the handcuffs and uh, my head was kept down. And they said, you can't look, don't look up, don't look up. And I kept looking down on the ground and the handcuffs opened and the slide door opened, which I came from, into the prison. And I saw my dad. And the guy said, go and don't look around because they didn't want you identifying who they really are. And I just walked. And uh, yeah, my life didn't, wasn't really the same after that. And I went home and I just went to my own life, my own silence. And um, my life changed when I opened my front door and there was an American soldier standing there. And that's when 2003 hit. The American troops entered Iraq, Saddam fell down. And that was the biggest table turn in the history of my life. Yeah. How old were you when I you opened 17, the door? Okay. 17 years old. I opened the door as an American there and I just uh, was excited and happy. And then I ended up joining the Iraqi military within a few weeks, the new Iraqi military they established. So. Oh, man. That's so heavy. Before we move forward and to help people understand, yeah. not just the Baptist Party, but a little bit about Iraq, the history, and yeah. and how Saddam, you know, came to be. Uh, like many countries, Iraq has a long, culturally rich, and at times very complex history. And anything you want to jump in or correct me on, yeah. um, but. It's a land that has been inhabited for thousands yeah. and tens of thousands of years. It has seen the rise and fall of numerous dynasties, empires, wars, and kingdoms. For most of its history, that region of the world in modern-day Iraq was known as Mesopotamia. Yeah. Uh, it's been invaded and controlled by Greeks, Mongols, Romans, Turks, Germans. It was the Ottoman Empire until the British took control. Uh, after World War I. Uh, it gained its independence in 1932, was briefly controlled by Nazis during World War II, but from the 1930s through the 60s, it worked towards becoming an independent and peaceful kingdom yeah. and then republic until the 60s and 70s when the Baathist Party came onto the scene and most notably Saddam Hussein took yeah. control. Told us a little bit about, you know, growing up uh, under that dictatorship. And when you said that they gave food rations, yeah. was 
they're such little food because they controlled it or because they lived and walked kind of on eggshells that it was hard to have a good economy. Things got pretty tough during the 90s because America was sanctions on Iraq. And the sanctions were tough because they didn't have much resources anymore. So the resources were all shut down. You know, you couldn't get anything from out of the country. You couldn't manufacture. You couldn't do much. So that time was very hard, food-wise, supply-wise, everything. You know, kids, medications, everything you're talking about, medical uh, devices. Everything was tough. And people were dying. The war was just bad for 1991. And, you know, they liked, I could say the Ba'ath Party liked to keep everyone under control. Yeah. They wanted to keep everybody walking in the same line and without any movement. So, yeah, history-wise, Iraq has always been a conflict. I mean, you look at it, man. Iraq breathes every single day conflict. Conflict has always been in conflict. Uh, always there's, you know, has been wars and pain, and somehow you always had a group of people that will defend that land. Right, you're always gonna have somebody that is almost um, be the ones to defend that land, and uh, and uh, yeah, that's what I found myself in 2003. Found myself fighting to preserve freedom for that land and that nation. Before we start on your life of service and the experiences that you had to help people understand in case they forgot why we went into Iraq. A couple of reasons. One was the fear of chemical weapons and weapons of mass destruction. Now, I think a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, we thought they were there and then they weren't. And we just made a huge mistake, which, you know, we were wrong. And we've admitted that. But I think people should understand. And I'm not trying to justify either way. I'm mainly just hoping, you know, to give a a better picture. But Saddam used chemical weapons for many years through the 80s on his own people, on other nations. You know, he has war crimes from other nations, you know, produced tons and tons of mustard gas and sarin and, um, you know, indiscriminately use those tools and those chemical weapons on people from multiple nations, including Iraq. And so although we were wrong, it was not far off to believe that maybe he still had capability or those weapons somewhere because he had used them so many times before. Would that be accurate? Yeah. I mean, he... Saddam wanted to have a nuclear bomb back in the 80s. That was his call. And he initiated towards a program. He did have chemical weapons. Anything you could hear hear off that he could harm harm a human being, he would be into it. He had his own scientists that were in there doing their own research, you know. Huda Amash was one of his biggest scientists. Uh, she was arrested, one of the 55 duck cards, uh, wanted people in Iraq. She ended up dying in prison. And Saddam uh, just was a complete fanatic, man. A complete fanatic. You can say 
he really believed he was something sent from God. And he had made it clear in his speech that if you go against the revolution, you go against the government, you go against the Ba'ath Party, I don't care how old you are, a year old, a day old, an 80-year-old, I will kill you. And that's his statement. So he was a dictator, and he definitely, definitely, um, through the times in Iraq, through over the times, he's probably one of the toughest dictators that ever uh, ever ruled Iraq. Mm-hmm. And he kind of made people believe that the only way to rule is fear. That's, that's the only way for him. He said the only way to rule is fear. And he used fear to make an example of people that he killed or how harsh you go. And that's how Saddam was. Do you want it? You to mind your own business and not say anything. Yeah, I, I pulled this off the internet and take it with a grain of salt. You know, I didn't check a hundred different sources, but yeah. uh, Project 922 was the code name for Iraq's third and most successful attempt at producing chemical and biological weapons. Yeah. Within three years, from 1978 to 81, Project 922 had gone from concept to production for the first generation Iraq, Iraqi chemical weapons or mustard gas. By 1984, Iraq started producing its first nerve agents. In 1986, a five-year plan was drawn up that ultimately led to biological weapons productions. By 1988, Iraq had produced VX, which is an extremely lethal and toxic yeah. nerve agent. Um, the program reached its zenith in late 1980s during the Iran-Iraq War. From August 1983 to July 1988, Iran was subject to extensive Iraqi chemical attacks between 81 and 91. Iraq produced over 3,857 tons of chemical weapons agents. As part of Project 922, German firms helped build Iraqi chemical weapons facilities such as laboratories, bunkers, and administrative buildings and first production buildings in the early 1980s under a cover of a pesticide plant. Other German firms sent 1,027 tons of precursors for mustard gas, sarin, and tear gas and all. This work allowed Iraq to produce 150 tons of mustard agents and 60 tons of taboon, T-A-B-U-N, in 1983 and 84. And to kick all of this off, he made the former president of Iraq resign so he could take power in 1979. And then his roughly 20-plus years of power and control began in the late 70s. He basically blackmailed him to take over power. Yeah. Yeah, and the guy was absolutely terrified as the president of the country. Imagine the president himself is terrified of his own deputy. Saddam is extremely psychologically smart person. I mean, you look into it, Saddam is very, very well-rounded psychological-wise. Uh, um, Saddam didn't only control the government. Saddam paid and took care of every single individual that had loyalty to him in that government at the time. And... They said that during that time, certain people in certain positions, important positions, 
that he, Saddam could ask for a favor would get like every time one of them get married or had some kind of thing going on in their own life, Saddam would know of it. And Saddam would mail him, like not, well, basically send him someone to give him a, either a brand new car, either an envelope full of money. So Saddam bought his way to basically, he controlled everything under the president of Iraq, Ahmed Hassan al-Bakr at the time. And the president himself didn't even have any, any authority anymore. Because Saddam has placed his own people that has loyalty to him. And to Saddam, loyalty was the biggest thing. Uh, he will try to get you to be loyal to him. But if he doesn't, if you try hard enough and you don't, get, you don't give him that loyalty, that's when your death sentence is coming up. That's when he starts killing you. That's when he will assassinate you and get rid of you. So he started as the intelligent director in, in Iraq. And he established uh, an equivalent of the CIA called Hanin. Uh, it's called the Hanin machine. That's what it's called. And he established that, and he was spying every single person. He basically made spies a spy and other spies and spies spy and other spies. And at the end of the day, that he was getting all information. Uh, Saddam is extremely fascinating with how curious he was about what how people think. Yeah, and by giving someone money or a car, you're not only yeah. kind of paying them off, but you're also saying, hey, I know that you just married someone yeah. and you care about someone. Yeah. So I also, you know, have them at my disposal too. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's extremely, um, extremely uh, hurtful, you know, like to see that... Um, To see that for that president, I'm at House on Decker, to not be able to like make a decision anymore. And he actually got him to a point where he said, I just want to get rid of this chair. I just want to get rid of this responsibility. Um, and there is a belief that he actually assassinated the president's son. He killed his own son. He killed a bunch of people. Once, yeah. once he got official yep. office, he killed like a lot of yes. dudes. That yeah, and that's in the Al Kold. Uh, it's called Al Kold um, Al Kold uh, Convention Center. It's a convention center where he brought the Bath Party members, and they were half of that Bath Party member who had concern about him taking over. These people were immediately accused of being. An agent of the Syrian government because yeah, the right, Syrian right. government was also a Ba'ath Party members, mm -hmm. and they Saddam and Hafez al-Assad, the president of Syria, both were rivals. They hated one another and had a collapse kind of head to head. They were were Ba'athists, but Saddam Ba'athist was different than Hafez al-Assad Ba'athist. The party was established by a Syrian guy named uh, Michel Michel Aflaq, and he's a Christian guy, and. He just, um, yeah, I mean, um, they didn't get along, him and Hafez al-Assad prison in Syria. So um, this was a great way of Saddam to basically clean up all his enemies. Yeah. So they pulled him up that day before, hours before Saddam became president. They pulled these guys out to the back of that convention center and shot them all in the head. Mm -hmm. And the way they did, they actually chose certain members and the bath party to go shoot them. So there are people out there that shot their best friends or shot their cousins. 
and they were forced to. And he set up a line behind the shooters that if any shooter hesitate of shooting that person, then the people in that line behind the shooters would shoot the shooter that hesitated. What? Yeah. It's dark. How do you even think of something like that? That's Saddam Hussein for you. Yeah. That's why when I say he is psychologically dangerous and he is inspired by Stalin and he made people kill one another and he was announced the president. Perhaps there was a guy when Saddam was in the gangs back in the day as a teenager, there was a guy who was like his kind of gang member or gang leader. That guy got assassinated too because he knew some secrets about Saddam's, right? And that no, guy, we'll say, uh, yeah. not even your loyal friends. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, that guy didn't have even anything to do with it. He was just a bit an old guy that used to be a gang member, right? They went to his house and killed him, got rid of him. So Saddam got rid of every single thing prior to that meeting that would have threat him taking the throne and becoming the president of Iraq. So he eliminated every single person. And what elimination does, it put fear on the rest. And if you go back and you look at that video when Saddam talked, he basically forced these people to get up and scream for him and cheer for him. They were doing it out of fear. You can see it in their face one mm-hmm. by one. Everybody was shitting their pants that if their name was going to get called. And they would not make it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's really where things are. And... uh and uh, yeah, that's how Saddam did it. And that's how he conquered the country in 1979. He takes over and then he takes Iraq to Iran war a year later. And then yeah. the Gulf War for the Gulf anyone war. not remembering yeah. all the details. Yeah. Uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, uh-huh. which both countries are now, or yeah. at the time, yeah. became independent. They were their own mm-hmm. nation. Yeah. Uh, both received independence from Great Britain. And... Uh, Saddam invaded Kuwait, and a lot of people say, it kind of bothers me to say, oh, yeah, well, that just happened because of oil. There's truth to that, but what you have to realize is Kuwait at the time was in control of 20% of the world's oil. oil. Yeah. To have that go into the hands and, and give unlimited funding to someone like this. Yeah would have not only been catastrophic for the world just in itself, um, but that would have given massive funds yeah. and I mean, power to I'm, him to continue to spread yeah. that, that iron fist and that ideology. I mean, look at, look at it this way. Kuwait was his best friends. Kuwait helped him through the Iran-Iraq war. They gave him a lot of money. They gave him a lot of resources, a lot of support. When he fought a very brutal country, like Iran, he fought a very bigger country than Iraq, mm-hmm. much more stronger, had three times the size of its, of its army. Mm-hmm. And he needed all the money in the world. So he had the personnel, but he did not, he did not have the money to continue. He was expected to lose that battle within three weeks of that war. He went for eight years in that battle against a country like Iran, and he survived. 
And he started conquering towards the end because everybody stood right behind him, right, to, to limit the Iranian influence. Because the Iranian influence was going to spread all over the Middle East, all over the world, almost like, you know, Nazis, where they wanted to go all over and spread their ideology. So he was fighting against that. And they were his best friends. Nobody thought he would go and take down Kuwait. Mm-hmm. The Republican Guard that entered Kuwait did not know they were going to occupy Kuwait. He asked them to go do life exercise in the borders in Basra. It's literally what he told them. And the Republican Guard moved in to Basra from Baghdad to the south to the Kuwaiti borders to do a life exercise. And at night, they get an order saying, if you don't, you need to go down to Kuwait, occupy Kuwait, take it back as an Iraqi land, and take down its government. That was a dumb announcement. Nobody knew. And this is a shocking thing. The Iraqi Minister of Defense himself didn't even know they were occupying Kuwait. That's wild. That's wild. <laughs> it's that the Iraqi Minister <laughs> of Defense, who is a military general, who is the guy that, you know, basically has to order the troops to go. Yeah, didn't even the military. It. Didn't even realize they're occupying Kuwait. So everybody in the world woke up and saw the Republican Guard entering Kuwait, including the Republican Guard, who didn't. They're like, why are we attacking Kuwait? This is our ally. But the orders were, go down, take down that. I mean, it took them about 15 minutes to take down that country. Mm-hmm. 15 minutes, that's how long it took. Because Kuwait wasn't strong. Saddam had like the fourth or the fifth biggest military in the world at that time. Yeah, like just under half a million or something. Oh, a million. A million. Yeah, he got to a point where he had a seven million soldiers. What? Yeah, the whole country was military. So... Was service mandatory? Mandatory. Everybody has to go. Yeah. Yeah. For three years. Everybody has to go. Volunteers, they go stay, whatever. But three years, you have to serve. And that's what he did. Service was mandatory. He actually, Kyle, to think of it, he actually buried generations of people. Mm -hmm. Iran-Iraq war, imagine that generation did not have a time in their life to live. They didn't have a time to be in love. They didn't have time to go to high school. They didn't have time Free. to live, to enjoy, to party, to know what life is, to go to college. They didn't have any of that. They went straight to war. They either got killed or got taken as POWs. Do you know to this day we're speaking, there are POWs in, in Iran, Iraqi POWs. Mm. And they're kept in the border with Russia. Oh, man. And they're using them for labor work, for labor, harsh labor. And it's ridiculously, these people left in their 20s and are now in their 60s. And they've been kept and they've never been sent home. And there have been a lot of evidence and investigations shows they're still alive. And they're being used as slaves and they're moving mountains, they're moving rocks, they are doing a lot of different things. But uh, Saddam put all that generation of ruin their life. It's multiple people. My own uncle was killed in that war. He was young. He only had two daughters, one year and like maybe a two-year-old and left at a young age, never came home. And uh, that's, that's how, and this is all our, Saddam's wars. You know, this is what Saddam was. He didn't care how many people died. And his decision. Not not a group effort. Not not a, hey, let's get the the chiefs of staff together. No, no. He 
he absolutely thought he was the commander in chief. He was the boss, and he was not a military guy. Mm-hmm. His his rank was honorably received. Honorably, he made a rank for himself. For God's sake, that's <laughs> what he did. He made a rank for himself, and of course, the one of the biggest fuck ups in the Iraq one, Iraq Iran war is that. A lot of people were dying. It was due to naive mistakes because the generals were not able to do their job. Saddam had to call the shots. And there was only a few generals that actually had to tell him the truth. And they either got killed or got executed. He actually executed some of the best fighters that fought for him in that war. You know, there was a name, Barak, Barak al-Hajj Hunta, who was the leader of the special forces. That dude fought so hard for him in the Iraq-Iran war. He was known as the, the Iran war hero. And 1991, this guy fought against the U.S. military and failed to obey Saddam orders. Saddam literally told him before he left to Kuwait, if you hear my voice in the radio telling you to pull out, do not pull out. That's not me. And then the guy stays in fight. He doesn't pull out. He stays in Kuwait. Air the truth, rid the drone, and ran. He stayed. And then they brought the guy and they punished him for not listening to orders when Saddam actually made an order to pull out. Then executed the guy brutally. Uh, information now showing that they executed him with a hammer. They basically slushed his body in pieces. And that's the guy that fought for him. That's the guy that gave him the best time of his life to fight for his regime. But it goes to show you that Saddam had absolutely no mercy against anyone. It, you could be anybody and he will still take your life if he has to, if you're a threat to him. So with all of that said, tell us about your journey after you opened that door to the American soldier and what happened after that. And And... I guess first, what was the military like at this time? What were the dynamics of those loyal to Saddam, those wanting to fight for Iraq? Yeah. Um, what was the dynamics like? Uh, I mean, the dynamics was you have a certain population that they were the big dogs in the room for so many years, and they're no longer a big dog in the room. This is the Bathurst party? Yeah, the Bathurst yeah. party. You had... A population that were loyalists to Saddam, and you have those who were against Saddam, right? And when I went to join, I joined in there, and I basically, it was a hard decision for me to make. Is either I have to stay in the neighborhood that I lived in and turn, turn my life to be a slavery, either I was going to do something about my freedom and go and fight. Freedom wasn't easy. It was not an option. You have to obtain or earn that freedom and in order for you to earn that freedom we had to go and fight for it so when i went and joined i kind of knew that i was going to go fight 99 percent of the rest of the country and that's why the first group that joined that iraqi military in 2003 were absolutely absolutely a whole different breed of men that saw rough days rough times you can see the scars on their face. You can see who they are. And or where they had been tortured. Where they had been tortured, where they had been, and the kind of life they obtained, right? And it's a country where military used to be mandatory. So nobody wanted to be in the military. 
Nobody wanted to go to war. But there is only that 1% of people that went in. Each and everyone has a motive to say, I was against the law and the government my whole life, but I am now the law. I am now coming up with a new constitution, whether you like it or not. I'm going to put that gun in your face and force this constitution on you. I think it was big for us, all of us. Iraq, first time having a constitution. We basically got to decide what that constitution says, and we're going to continue it. Yeah, it's amazing. We went out and trained by Vietnam veteran, by an American company called MPRI, had some Vietnam veterans, some older retired guys and Marines, and they come in and they trained the first group of the Iraqi military. We went through a proper training base for three months, and... Um, my experience was fun because the, 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 what do you say? It's like American a drill instructors and gunnery instructors <laughs> yelling at a bunch of Iraqis. And it was fun and doing push-ups and getting punished. And it was, it was absolutely fun. But then the, the reality check hit when the first Fallujah battle kicked on and that's when they said, okay, everywhere in the country we have ICDC, Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, which is like locals fighting locally. But the Iraqi 1st Iraqi Division, that's the infantry guys that are, you know, been trained for a long time, fed well, PT twice a day. That's an actual division that can get on the ground and fight. And I remember they came to us and they said, uh, we all going to get tomorrow, we're mobilizing and we're just going to get to. Uh, drive from the Iranian borders where we're training near the Iranian borders to Ambar province with Fallujahs. And I remember we had to go through Baghdad. And what time frame was this? 2003, 2004. Okay. We had to go through Baghdad. And we were in our way to Fallujah. So you have to kind of pass Baghdad and then you make it another hour to Fallujah. And in our way... And called Shela in Baghdad, in an area called Shela, is actually controlled as like a, a Mahdi militia, Mahdi army habitat kind of thing. And all I remember is was like big truck tires are in the middle of the road burning, and the whole road is shut down. So we went in, and that's our way. And we moved these tires. We can see the population is all ready to fight. We move the tires and we go in, and then their thinking is this is just a, a ICDC, Iraqi Civil Defense Corps patrol. They haven't looked. This is actually a brigade on the ground because the conflict just continues, and it's full of soldiers that have been training for a very long time. And when the first bullet and the first RPG flew out, they found out the hard way that they're this is not a small limit because we went in, kept continued to go in the middle of the road. We stopped and we deployed. And they realized at that point, this was not the ICDC. This is an Iraqi army infantry unit, an equivalent to the 101st, basically, that j- jumped out of the trucks and started fighting accordingly. We started basically taking over the area. And we kind of destroyed that road. And it was a big road, two-sided roads. We destroyed the whole place. And they didn't realize 
they were used to the ICDC guys shoot a couple of bullets and walk on away. They're not used to infantry unit moving towards them professionally and push back and lock it all around them. So when we pushed down, they kind of found out like, oh, crap, this is not what we thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And we just happened to be going on the way. So they were sending this up to whoever, to the local patrol or whatever, but they just didn't realize who, what's going on. Clearly, they didn't see the convoy how long it goes. It's big. It's massive. So we get out. We fight him. And they saw we controlled everything. And then we got ordered to get on the trucks and continue to go to Fallujah. So we kind of knew they were not the, the main focus. So they ran away. We get back up. And we're like, we haven't even gone into Fallujah and here's all the trouble. We get to Fallujah and they deployed everybody and that's when the first sorry so that first town though on the way to fallujah yeah the people that you're fighting they obviously have a hard life too and they know that it's because of saddam's regime and his power where was that urge to fight coming from the the Mahdi militia because muqtara sadr had announced to to fight the americans okay and you could say in a way that they wanted part of the iraqi government that the Americans wasn't going to give them. So that's why. Okay. And basically, Muqtada Sadr is a Shia clerk that his father was executed by Saddam and his two, three other brothers. And he's the only survivor. So he is uh, sacred to these people. He might not be educated. He might not be a smart guy, but he is sacred to these individuals. So that's why they were fighting for him. So we had the Mehdi militia in Baghdad, Shola fought these guys and then we continued to go to Fallujah that's where Al-Qaeda and the Sunni insurgency was going on and that's a whole different level so when we got there the fight started and that was a professional infantry battlefield going in and we went in did what we had to do and then I got pulled to go to Haifa Street back to Baghdad which was the most dangerous two miles in Iraq at the time were you with American troops at this time going into Fallujah yeah you were yeah so we are actually fought side by side the Marines. The Marines were just got there at the same time we were. And, and when you when you first linked up, when was that and what was that experience like starting to get to know each other and work together? I mean, it's it's a magical experience, man. Imagine you're from Baghdad or from south of Iraq or northern of Iraq and you find yourself sitting in the tower with a dude from Kentucky. all right and or from tennessee or from texas or you know you're like talking to this guy and you're spending about 13 14 hours a day in that tower talking to to this guy you kind of become part of his life you learn all about him he learns all about you yeah so he you know you're fighting for the same mission it's it's you're fighting for the same mission you bond together pretty well you know you go through the humor and the dark humor and the shit and stupid stuff you would do together and arguments screaming and everything but at the end of the day you build this great relationship so for me i I picked up my english pretty fast because i was right there around americans every single day yeah i was gonna ask that man your english is great i talk to more americans every single day than iraqis Mm -hmm. every day i'll be talking to more americans every single day so I was extremely um, lucky to to find a really good group of Marines that cared for me and made sure that I was taken care of. And I think they saw that I was young, trying to 
make a life for myself, trying to get myself out there and prove that their training that I did with them was pretty hard. They would train us, you know, we were trained by Marine gunneries as well as PSD school when I went to PSD school. And we, um, we just kind of bonded together, man. Like mm-hmm. you, you got to know these guys and you fought with them and you get shot out together and you don't want to, you, you become a team. And yeah, well, it really meant a lot to me, and yeah. it was very fulfilling in yeah. Afghanistan Yeah, when we would interact with locals or members yeah. of the Afghan National Army, Yeah, and you got the sense that they were as committed as you were, that they were willing to go out on the patrols to risk their safety, and it was, like you're saying, it was very powerful to have two people that didn't speak the same language, that were dressed different, had different weapons and gear, but ultimately both of us, U.S. Marines and the Afghan National Army, we were working towards just hoping to make that country better. And uh, I mentioned the chemical weapons reason earlier of why we went into Iraq, but the other two reasons were to bring down Saddam's regime and ultimately to help free the people of Iraq. Yeah. And so that's, that's a beautiful thing that yeah. that you appreciated your time with the Marines. And, yeah, and indeed. Y'all. I think everything was meant to happen, man. If Saddam stayed in power, Saddam would have absolutely cost a lot of trouble. That's the truth. A lot of people were like, oh, it's been happening easier if Saddam had. Yeah, if Saddam with his thinking and chemical weapons and the ideologies that he has, you know, if he had a nuclear bomb, you would be terrified right now. You would not be making your decisions in the Middle East the way you want because he will be there for you. And that means Iran will go have it and everybody else will go have it. And you know what that will lead to. So, you know, that that time of my life was extremely, really something to be proud of. You know, the people, the legends that I met through my time, the names that I met at the time that you wouldn't think that someday they would be anybody, right? And, you know, like Megan McClog, the youngest Marine female killed in combat. You know, you meet The Rock, who was a former Boloco prisoner, doctor, professor, came, joined, put the uniform on and went to fight until he died. And you got people that just lived a rougher life than you are. And uh, you just uh, continued with it. So I think for, for me, when I came to Haifa Street in 2004, that... That was my biggest transition point in my life is it's where I went from being a, a young NCO to being a command sergeant major in the Iraqi military, which I was the youngest uh, sergeant major in Iraqi military history in 2004 to receive the rank of a sergeant major. So going towards Fallujah and then Haifa Street, what age were you at this point? Uh, I was 17 going on, and then I became 18 by the time I got into Haifa Street. I was 18 years old, uh, going, like going on 19, and that Haifa Street was completely different than anywhere you have fought. Haifa Street was controlled by a lot of Saddam loyalists who was trained as the special guards or members of military elements or Iraqi intelligence or whatever they were. And they were led by a guy named Said Hitchem, who was actually uh, a former Republican Guard officer that was trained in Russia on war tactics and ambushes. Uh, and he set up an ambush. Basically, what they wanted to do is they wanted to kill an Iraqi recruits uh, 
Iraqi army expending was a bad idea for these people. The more Iraqis are in the fight, it's the harder things becomes for them. So they wanted to, they killed about 25 new recruits uh, who just went to fill an application at the Iraqi recruiting center. And then they got them off the bus, executed them, and they put their bodies towards the end off the road right by the Tigris River. And it's a downhill and just because they signed the paperwork they to signed want the paperwork. to join the they military. They were not soldiers. Yeah, they were just people that that applied to applied to go to um applied to go to basically um did you want to join the military? They just wanted to join. So they killed him and the point was to capture an Iraqi soldier in uniform and to behead him in national TV. So that way, it scares the rest of the country. So that puts a stop to it. And at the time, my platoon leader and I were assigned to actually go to Hyper Street and pick up these dead bodies. We end up going in there, and then as soon as we got there, uh, the whole road was empty. There was nobody there. You knew something was going to go down. And I was absolutely terrified that something was going to go down because it's not as quiet as it should be. And the firefight went down when the first RPG hit the trucks. They were up in the hill, and then we went downhill. We all hid behind the the bridge columns to fight. And the fight went on for about hour and 45 minutes, which, you know, for those who don't know, like usually when you get in a firefight, you get a QRF immediately called in in the base, and they should be on their way 20 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. And at the time, our QRF tried to make it in, and our QRF was injured enough to it's have a quick way, reaction force. Quick reaction force, and the quick reaction force was already shot, which we could hear him screaming on the radio. And then the last message was from the commander of the the element was a captain at the time, who's now actually an Iraqi general, star general now in the Iraqi military. Um, said a. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I don't think I can make it. I got like 17 people shot here in my convoy and I'm shot in the back. And that's his words. And we didn't hear from him again. Uh, at the time, I made the decisions to get rid of all my radios because at the time, we, are, we had about eight guys left beside me and we're all tired, broken down, running out of ammo. And we kind of, felt like holy crap we're probably gonna get captured one at a time and get beheaded um each each and every one of us towards the end because we did not see any signs of americans coming in we knew there were probably something going on that preventing people from coming in and they did they have another element out there in the beginning of that road preventing any kind of force coming through so we were stuck inside and the fight just continued we were on low ground they were in the high ground they had a professional sniper most of these guys were killed by a sniper exposing their cover we had one stairs that go up to the bridge we try to take high ground badly and three people died trying to get high ground so we knew to just there's no way out one person jumped on the river tried to swim and he got shot right away in the back and your only option was either to surrender or keep fighting so i made the decision at the time to get rid of the radios and to actually cease fire completely cease fire so we ceased fire and we made a rule called the 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 15 15 feet rule 
that we're going to cease fire. They're about 150 something meters or so from us. And how many guys are still They're about alive? 150 of them versus like eight at the time, nine of us. So we ceased fire. And when actually ceased fire, they started exposing themselves to, to create a pressure. And I had a Kurdish fighter that was next to me, goes by the name Solemn. And he was really good with the PKC. He fought the Republican Guard his whole life as a resistant Beshmarga. And he ended up in the Iraqi military, you know, you know, in 03. And, uh, and he started actually eliminating them as they exposed themselves because we fought them from behind walls. The moment they start coming out from the walls, that's when we actually went back to like our traditional methods, let them expose and we'll all hit them. And they came out and they found out the hard way and they stopped getting close. And then the QRF that made it was, the first QRF was an American QRF, a Bradley company. And it was a, a guy named, goes by the name Jeff Morris, wrote a book called Legion Rising as well. So it's kind of interesting. He talks about the ambush in Legion Rising, and I talk about it in my book, The Terrorist Whisper, about all how it went down. And when he first went down, he figured out a way to go into Haifa Street. Like basically, he made them think he was going one way, and then he made it through the back. And this was his area of responsibility, so he was very familiar with the area. And he was a smart officer doing with his thing. I mean, he lost six guys in Iraq, and and he went in from the back and was able to relieve us. And as soon as he opened his Bradley gate in the back, um, he saw a dead body in uniform tied up to the back of the traffic light. And that was actually the body of my lieutenant who was captured alive. The um, one that told you over the radio that he had been shot No, in that's the, back. the QRF commander. Okay. That's the QRF commander. The lieutenant was with us the whole time. But because we went into two different ways and... Um, his element was completely done and he went into a different column and then we didn't realize that they captured him alive. And at the time you didn't see what's in your left and your right. Uh, I kind of just knew the group that was around me. I only saw the guys that are killed around me, a few guys. I didn't realize that their element was completely done and he was captured. Uh, we think he was shot and then he was alive. So they dragged him, took off his body armor, Kevlar, and beheaded him and, and tied him up to the traffic light. Because I remember them screaming from the right side, and I thought we were going to get attacked again or we're gonna, they're going to get a push on us from the back or anything. And we didn't know what was the screaming were, and the screaming was actually them celebrating his uh, beheading. So he was 25 years old. Uh, I'm sure this was a terrifying thing for him. And uh, I just was like, you know, it was my first time seeing how the ugly side of the Iraq war. First time seeing the ugly side of what you signed up for. And I got promoted within a few days to a command sergeant major in the Iraqi military. And my job was no longer to be emotional. My job was to lead and make sure that we have enough soldiers to fight, to continue the fight. And I went in, continued to uh, protect the base, which was being attacked every single day and took care of these soldiers and continued to do my job every single day. And my age was just not even in the book to what it was. Uh, perhaps my own command sergeant major ran away. He deserted after that day. He was not even in the fight. But anybody with kids and family had to think of twice. 
these are 18 men that just got slaughtered. There's another extra mound that just got shot. How many men did you start off with on that mission? What's that? How many men did you have total? 29, 28. And 18 were killed? Yeah, 18 were killed. And we just got out and we just looked and like, okay, so there is nine of us here. That element has about four guys. That element has that. And he just kind of looked and it hit you hard when the bodies came to the base. And that one, everything really hit you hard, right? You were like, that could be me. And the fight went on. And then once I became the Sergeant Major, it was just a, an update to what's going to happen. And uh, continued to fight. My own command Sergeant Major ran away. A lot of people actually deserted from the unit. Like 50% of the unit actually packed up their stuff and left. The guys who were in it for the money, at that point, they were done. They walked out. The guys who were in it for the fight, and it was personal for them, they didn't care. They didn't have anywhere to go. So it was me and a few other guys, and we had one guy. He actually was on a stable Iraqi that ran away from Sock Ward in 2003 and joined the military with us. He was completely psycho. And the guy had a gun. And uh, he actually heroically uh, attacked a, an enemy element from Haifa Street that attacked the gate. And we all took cover, and this guy ran towards them, and they, they never been, someone ever got that close to them during an attack. He ran towards them and opened fire in the middle of a fire. You saw the gunshots when I showed you in the picture when I was standing in Haifa Street in every wall. This guy just gets off the cover and run down the gate. And they were shooting behind the gate, but they are never used to. Somebody would just come running towards fire. And he just ran. He was in psych ward for most of his life. His name is Jaleel, and I have told his stories in my podcast, and it's, it's funny stories about Jaleel. He, he was not stable. He would drive the fucking trash bins and the trash carts all over the unit. I mean, he was not there. And he happened to know the Iraqi military at the time could offer food and shelter. And he came in and joined the military. And he ran a shot at them. Perhaps the guy, we had a gate, metal gate, and he put the PKC through the gate to shoot randomly. When he saw him running, he dropped the PKC and ran. So we actually ended up getting an enemy gun, right, falling by the gate. And they ran. They got on a car. They drove. He crossed the gate and chased them around. What? Yeah. And we, we all, all literally got up. It took us minutes to get up. We we're like, he's probably dead. They probably killed him. Like, there's no way someone would cross the gate and go chase a car full of terrorists, all fully armed. And all of a sudden, we see a little helmet walking back. And we're looking at him. We're like, what the fuck is this? And... <laughs> He said, I think I shot him in the trunk. That's what he said. <laughs> We're like, so what's your deal? And he said, uh, he's like, yeah, I was a psych word my whole life. My family put me there. They're a bunch of bastards. And, and, uh, well, we, forget all the questions I was about to ask. <laughs> I understand. I understand now. Yeah. So it was, it was just a funny, uh, situation in the middle of war. You see a guy and, and my, my master sergeant looked at me at the time. He goes, and we gave him a gun. Like, we gave him a pistol and a rifle. <laughs> and I said, you know, I said, I, I don't think they'll ever mess with us again <laughs> until this moment. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, man. Well, um, you know, speaking of the gate, yeah, uh, you were telling me over lunch about how often vehicle-borne explosives, you know, drove to the gate and uh, tried to get through it. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to even imagine yeah. being out there every day yeah. and wondering if every car or every civilian that walks up with baggy clothes on or looking sketchy is about to hit detonate on an explosive. You know, as hard as it is to comprehend, can you just describe what the, those gates were like and the early mornings at 7 a.m. when the cars would often drive up? So the, the attack times were known at the gates is we were we were get attacked at, at small firearms at night. And the point was it was all psycholo- psychological to keep you up because they knew that you were resting. There's elements that are resting inside and that you were all respond in case of an attack. The biggest attacks would come on the gate around 7 o'clock in the morning to 7.15 that's when most pedestrians are coming in, and that's when the roads are busy. And these are some of the scariest times. So you imagine that you're being under pressure. You're being hit by car bombs in the morning. You get casualties, and at night you get attacked by small firearms. The small firearms was actually not an intent to attack the base or enter the base. I mean, they have attacked in multiple places where they enter bases, and they come with a larger group. But they will send eight, nine guys, and they will start disturbing us. And the attacks, the real attacks, comes in in the morning. And the car bombs that were blowing up at the time in Baghdad, man, I mean, you're talking about everybody was vulnerable to getting shot at that point. Civilian, child, older woman, pedestrian, just walking by, not only soldiers. So it was a scary time. Uh, Casualty-wise, evacuation-wise of civilian injuries and death, and it was a scary time. You know, I had one car bomb blow up there, and it was like a nuclear bomb. It was a tractor trailer full of C4. And I've never seen the Hisco barriers all empty out of sand. I've never seen the the concrete barriers being broken in half, right, from the explosion. And that was, I was like, this just this is another level. And... uh it was a tough moment for me because I got to see some of my soldiers die and not make it at all. And and it's weird, you know, when you get explosions like that, man, it's kind of weird when you go out to evacuate people and get them help if they're still alive and you see the people with no clothes. Their clothes were completely gone. Almost have naked people. And it was just weird. And the smell of... Burned bodies is probably the worst smell you can ever smell in the world. And it was bad. It was really, really bad. And the surge in Iraq was absolutely insane. And that's where it was. And when it comes to those moments, you know, standing at the gate, are you even wondering, hey, are, are you, how do you compartmentalize and work through those moments where it's so natural to be frozen by fear? I mean, that every car could have a massive explosive in it that every civilian walking up you said there was one that detonated uh was it a suicide vest that he had a jacket on in the summer how do you get through those moments in life or in combat to 
keep walking forward and knowing that that checkpoint and that gate is the safety of everyone, but it's such a risk. It is absolutely 100% risk. And you look at it that it's 100% risk. Um, I was willing and knowing that I was going to lose people every day. I absolutely did not plan to live after 2006. I thought if I make it to the end of 2006, I'll be lucky that I am no different than the guys that didn't make it off to 2004. So the the fight, the, the, the longer these years went by, is that five years of war that every year was tougher than the other. You know, and the IDs and the EFBs and all that started coming. This was absolutely um, hard, very hard. And mentally, I think, to be honest with you, my emotions were completely shut down. You know, I was in that fight unemotionally. And after Highfish Street, seeing my people die and everything, I, my emotions were shut. And that's when I was able to operate professionally and I was able to do my job and take this fight to the enemy because I really couldn't have an emotion going to this enemy. This was a vicious enemy who was willing to die in order to stop you. Yeah. You had to have adapt some kind of mentality to really face them. And we got harsher and harder and we started to learn how to protect ourselves as much as possible. And we started to learn how to give less casualties than usual. Do you feel like those you were serving with, those that were in the Iraqi army, yeah, you know, did they, they were there because they wanted to, because they wanted to help, and they believed in a, a better future for Iraq? They do. They absolutely do. The first generation was absolutely motivated, absolutely great people. Um, the faces, man, they came through. They wanted a better Iraq, man. And I think... There might be more people that came in and they considered it just a way of living, right? And and the truth is, is there are some that it meant something to, right? Those who went through a hard time, those who were, didn't have their freedom, right? Those who were being chased down by the government all these years and now they're the law. They're the ones chasing people. It, it was some kind of a redemption, right? Like these are the people I was scared of if I looked at them in the eye, right? And now I'm here fighting them gun to gun. Yeah, and we're in an equal fight. So I think as 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 much as hard this was, this was appreciation for us that we're actually able to have an equal fight against an enemy we couldn't look at an eye. Mm-hmm. But now we're in an equal position, and we can fight them, and we can hurt them, and we can stop them. And at the end of the thing, when you win, you're the one detaining them. So that's when you really realize, okay, there is a value of what I'm doing here, and I like what I see and I just went into the fight and I turned into this war machine for the five years of war until you know like 2005 that's when I started getting involved with the U.S. intelligence because I got transferred to the Iraqi MOD and that's when my job kind of started taking different directions uh, for me. And I'm looking forward to talking about your job in the Ministry of Defense and with our intelligence agencies but speaking of those that used to be, you know, controlled by the regime to now they're serving in the military and bringing down the regime. You told me a story earlier today, and I told you that I've just, I can't stop thinking about it. Um, But can you tell everyone about The Rock and 
Yeah. You know, his drive to serve and why he was so driven. Yeah. I mean, The Rock has um, been a doctor and a professor. His nickname. his nickname was The Rock. Real name was Khalid. And he joined the Iraqi military, was called The Rock, not after Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. He was actually called The Rock because his face, no smile. So they considered his uh, grunt face as a rock. He was an extremely depressed person, for sure. You can have noticed that he was just doing his training, doing his thing, and there was no conversations. Um, he has lost his wife and a child by the regime, or executed, due to his, his ex being involved in something against the government. And he just was absolutely there for uh, no reason. Revenge. He, he was just there to fight. And he was taking his anger somewhere. Uh, I mean, perhaps no one talked to him. No one could talk to him. I built this relationship with him because I think I kind of reminded him of his, you know, and his and his uh, family or anything like that. But he he talked very limited, and he wanted to be in this fight more than anything. But also, he wanted to die. He was risking himself, going on conducting raids on very dangerous targets fighting out there and doing his thing and he wanted to be the first person to run towards fire and uh we didn't know his struggles until later and uh he died uh, honorably after conducting a raid and was shot in the face and the chest and um uh, he was not a happy camper in a lot of pain and he was not afraid to die these people destroyed his life put him in underground prison after they executed his wife and his child. And the way that they and, killed his wife and yeah, child. Yeah, in a chemical water. And they put him in underground prison. Underground prison was a worse sentence than death. Underground prison was under the Iraqi intelligent headquarters, and it's like basements that turned into prisons. And he didn't have a life. He had an aunt that lived in Baghdad, and that's about it. And... He just decided that this was his path and this is where he wanted to go. And his last word is, is I will always watch your six. I'll always be out there. And uh, his words were very limited, man. He looked. I showed you the picture today. Mm -hmm. There was nothing, man. There's no emotions in that guy's face. There's no happiness. He was done. He was done with life. Yeah. He wanted just to fight. And in a way, we saw death as a, as a release for him from his misery and his pain. Isn't the underground, which is unbelievable that the the worst prisons were yeah. underneath a government building, but didn't Saddam torture Olympians? Uh, Saddam Hussein's son has. Olympic athletes that didn't yes, win or I place mean, a medal? Um, he, his Saddam Hussein's older son was in charge of all the sports in Iraq. He was in charge of the Olympic Committee as well in Iraq, and he tortured Olympians, soccer players, all kind of people. He was a monster, that older one. What was it like when Saddam and his dad's statue came down oh, in Baghdad? That, that was a that was a tough moment, very very tough moment, and uh, because you kind of like saw this guy that controlled you for 35 years and ruled you go down in the ground and now they're 
slapping him in the face with sandals, right? And you just look at him and he's like, that's how much of a coward this guy is. That's how much of a coward he is that here he is. It's a coward. He's nothing that tough. He was found in a hole when they arrested him. And took this country to wars, loss, death, hunger, through everything. He put us through a lot. Him and his family, and I'm sorry to say the word, him and his like backwards brothers. His brothers were completely, like completely backwards. They were not even qualified for an elementary school education. And he put them in charge of intelligence, put them in charge of Ministry of Interior, country security, and they didn't even know how to communicate with people properly. They were a bunch of thugs. So that's who Saddam Hussein is. And uh, that's what that regime is like, and that's what that family have done to Iraq. Was it a good moment, though, when his statue came down? Oh, that was a great moment. Yeah. And, and it was a tough moment because you were like, that's the guy? Yeah. That did all this to us? Now he's going down just like that, going down the ground, kids kicking him kicking his head in a statue of the rocks. It, it, it was like an emotional moment and tough at the same time, right? Because you didn't know what's coming next, too. So a statue comes down, and um, one of the biggest mistakes, I think it's safe to say, and a very controversial decision on our part and coalition forces was after the statue came down, after we were making really good progress. We disbanded the Iraqi army, which had around a half a million troops. What was it like seeing the results of that on the ground? And how did did that play out? Yes, you could say it was a mistake that they let go of the old Iraqi military. But to be honest with you, like to be honest, I know this people talk about this all the time and say, yeah, this was a mistake. If you kept the Iraqi army around, you haven't had you would have not gotten any army at all. You would have gone in the generals that Saddam had. Most of them were shitbags anyway. And you would have gone on the same faces back. The truth is that army was full of people that were forced to fight, that were forced to be in the military. The military was mandatory. So yes, you did have millions of people that was in the service but you have to ask yourself the question did these people want it to be in the army yeah no they didn't they were forced to you know soldiers were known as soon as like gulf gulf war the 2003 war as soon as shit hit the fan they're gonna take uniforms off throw their guns away and walk home Mm -hmm. they are not motivated soldiers saddam had Motivated soldier during the 80s because it was a moral thing to defend Iraq against Iran who wants to take us over. But the 90s, I can tell you, his, soldier, his, his army was completely broken. His generals lied to him, telling him, we have the strongest army. We're going to hold this against U.S. troops for six months. They fell in three weeks. He did not have a motivated army. And yes, if they try to keep their old Iraqi army, I can tell you, they have kept a small element of it, nothing crazy. But most people didn't want to be in the military. They were dumb, man. Spent their whole life in the military. Their parents spent their whole life in the military. They they don't want to be in the military. Well, we did that to purge, as you're saying, anybody that was loyal to that that regime. So to hear you think that it wasn't the 
as big of a mistake as some yeah. people make mm-hmm. it out to be. Yeah. Uh, makes me feel better. Yeah, definitely. It's not a big mistake. And you know that the we end up taking some of these shit back generals, becoming part of our military, and end up with me in the MOD where I worked. Yeah, and so about that, so you go from more operational, yeah, being in firefights, you know, outside of the, yeah. the, the base walls, yeah, to, you know, how did we as Americans and coalition forces, how did you start to get recognized as this incredible asset that could help us? So my job was to be the command assignment major of the MOD. I was not known as an intelligent asset to the, to the Iraqis, you know. That's Ministry of Defense. Ministry of Defense, you know, the MOD. So when I got to the MOD, the the weird thing about the MOD, you saw half of the faces in the MOD did not look friendly. A lot of them from the old regime had their own motives. They didn't like the Americans. So, but what you have to ask yourself a question, why were they there if you don't like the Americans? And they came in and you could see it on their face. You could feel their energy. that They didn't want to be there. But why were they there? And that's what you're asking yourself. And... What happened was every enemy of the United States at the time in Iraq have thought America was very invincible. Like America was just, would know everything. It took them about a year to two and they realized, oh crap, these people don't even know what they're doing. So what they started doing, they started implementing people within the Iraqi government. They realized it's a cake being divided and Al-Qaeda had his own people in the government, had their own defenders in parliament, Naqshbandi's battle corps, Iranian intelligence. Everybody was just coming through that door. And soon, that put the American advisor who's sitting in the MOD to say, I have no idea who I'm sitting with. Could be the Iranian intelligence, could be whoever it is, but I don't even know who they are. I don't even know their backgrounds. They're coming to me with their positions with the Iraqi government. So things were very hectic for the U.S. government at the time. What are they going to do? And until... Uh, Minister of Defense from Fallujah actually was assigned to be the Minister of Defense. And he brought like all his cousins and friends and tribes and everybody to be there, his security detail. Long story short, these were members of Al-Qaeda in the building. But you also had about 60 American advisors that will cross from the green zone within a small door. Probably you've seen it in the documentary with John Petraeus standing in front of it. Will cross in with a nine millimeter in their leg. Because it's considered not a green zone and not a red zone. It's in between. But you are bringing 60 Americans to get among the biggest sharks in the world, biggest, most dangerous people in the world every single day to sit on a desk job and try to build the infrastructure of the Iraqi military. While not knowing who is who. Not knowing who is who. So these individuals that came from Fallujah tried to kidnap an American officer from the building. It was actually the only location in Iraq where you can see a major to a Fulbright colonel walk on his own. Because he's not attached to a unit, he's just an advisor. He works at Mystiki, MNFI, multinational force. This guy is not, he is in uniform, but he's not a fighting soldier. He's not with a platoon, he's not with a protection. He just had a nine millimeter in his leg and he'll cross over. These are desk job guys. These are logistics, uh, operational guys. And they try to kidnap somebody from the building, which I have ended up foiling that and getting that American out of the building because the Americans were supposed to leave out of the building every day at four, go back to their green zone area, and they go back safe. We had only a few Americans at the operation center who would actually um, report back and brief off any Iraqi IA in contacts because these people would, would basically see all 10th Iraqi divisions in contact to what's happening, and they will report back to U.S. leadership in the morning. So... 
we foiled that kidnapping attack. We got an American out. At that point, when I foiled that kidnapping attack by an Al-Qaeda train operative, which we didn't even know who he was, that the United States government and the military leadership said, like, how are we going to put these advisors back in there without knowing what's going on? And 72 hours, I went from working with U.S. advisors, military intelligence guys, to being handed to what's called collection team. And these guys were like OGA. They do look civilian. Some of them are civilians. Some of them are Marine Corps intelligence because the guy I was dealing with was from the Ambar province. It's where he was coming from. So it was a joint operation of intelligence coming through. And that's when my officially, I started being handed as a U.S. intelligent assets within the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. And my job turned around to be collecting intelligence on enemy individuals, identifying who's who. It's almost like finding out the ocean under the iceberg, right? You need to know who is who, what they're doing, what they're up to. And that's where the that's where things went from there. And it was a hard thing to say because you would think, oh, that's a really cool job, right? You're gonna spy on people. But if you think about it, in that culture, this thing is a treason. In Iraqi law, communicating with foreign intelligence is the execution punishment for terrifying. So, and, you're, and you're not in the shadows. You're wearing yeah. an Iraqi army uniform. uniform. You're a sergeant major. Yes. And they know that you're close with the yeah. Americans. Mm-hmm. I mean. And, and it's, it's terrified them too. Because anybody they can kill in five seconds. But how are they going to kill a command sergeant major who's protected by a whole unit? That was hard. And that was the touchdown there. Is that after eliminating that guy who was an Al-Qaeda operative and getting him detained in the Ambar province, uh, I'm sure you saw the documentary, they found a cache in his backyard. They found uh, containers full of uh, fighters and AC system and ventilation running to it. These were skilled top fighters in Garma Fallujah. So when he got detained with his entourage, that's when my credits went up. Mm-hmm. And that's when things over the time and months and years started changing. And I think it didn't make sense to me, like why intelligent collection teams will change every once in a while, right? Like what new new person? Let me introduce you to the new person coming in, and and it kind of became a job. To be honest with you, that was became a skill set, and that's why I was just doing what I'm doing every day, and I was good at it. And I started to understand the more time, the more I did it, that I started to understand what's more valuable, what's not valuable. And what intelligence to run and what intelligence not to run. And how to identify false intelligence that they would spread around. Or, and it was, it was a long, long thing that towards the end, I, I became really good at it. I was doing what I was doing. I was identifying many different people. So I went from, basically I painted the picture for the U.S. intelligence that are in, in the fight to understand who they're dealing with and understand the dynamics but all these agencies showing up at the time, you're kind of like the router that everybody hooked up to. And the intel agencies were multiple different ones will come in because of, I think, the Patriot Act in the United States here where they all see things going on. And, you know, you, you're like a football draft guy. You know what I mean? Like they, you're being drafted by all these 
different people, different missions, different environment. Until the end, you know, some three-letter hire agency guy shows up and he said, okay, you're no longer working with everybody. You're working with me. And we're no longer doing any of this. We're going to do something else. And we went and started going after the big dogs. We started going after bigger things, um, weapon deals, uh, more governmental things. But at the end of it, we were able to save American lives, stop some of these bad guys, know who they really are, and be ahead of the game. That was the most important thing in the war, is to understand the dynamics. Because if you understand the dynamics of the politics and who's who, what is their intentions are, what do they want, then you will actually get an idea at how to stop them, right? Whether you use force to stop them, whether you use politics to get them to come to your side a little bit. And that's what helped change the draft of the war and we were able to do what we do. So I went to that and, you know, I did that for a very long time. And I um, remained there until 2000 and end of 2007 to 2008. That's just so wild. From firefights to working yeah. in the Ministry of Defense yeah. to to helping intelligence sources that it sounded like once you got deep into it, people that were probably advising the president. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, when things went to the intelligence briefing, I didn't know about that until 2017 until I was in the U.S. and when the documentary um, kicked in and I, I saw that. And, I, you know, I, I kind of was just doing my job, man. Uh, I, my life was saved by the American soldier in combat. You know, I, my life was saved by a gunnery, a Marine gunnery sergeant, San Diego Morales from California. Uh, once uh, in battle, almost got shot in the face. He pulled me down with him. I could have been killed instantly. Uh, to me, I wasn't doing anybody a favor, man. I was just doing my job. Yeah, of course. I was just doing what returning the debt that I have built with other people that saved my life. It's just crazy how much your journey progressed in just a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. It was a a very crazy five years, man. I could tell you these five years went too fast, and the things that went on in these five years, you can never forget every single day of it because it was just absolutely crazy. The people I ran to in my life, the legendary names that walked by me, stood by my side, holy crap. I mean, back then, did I look at it this way? Did I think I'll be standing next to the highest Marine ranking female um, to be killed in action? Did I think I was going to stand next to the top intelligent agent and intelligence star in the country? No, I didn't know anybody. To me, these were just people. And only when you get out of it, you look back and you see, holy crap, look at the part, look at how these people were part of my life and were able to be part of my life and help out. You know, Megan knew me, Megan McClog, who was um, at the time in Iraq in early 2004, actually, as a civilian contractor and got to meet with her and she was like more of a mentor. I was a young 17-year-old. She was, you know, 32 years old, 33. And um, it was it was just a, it, it was a blessing, you know, you could say to have these people. And I think to me, it showed me who America is and who Americans are based on the treatment of these individuals that I met in Iraq. That's amazing. You mentioned your documentary, and I'm going to plug it in other places, but uh, for all of you listening, have to go check out Hamity's documentary. It is 
unbelievable. It's eye-opening. It's extremely informative. And it is called The Terrorist Whisper, and it's on Amazon Prime. I watched it last week. Uh, probably going to watch it again here soon. But uh, his book, if you want to check it out, is also called The Terrace Whisper. And uh, one thing about Iraq, and we've we've talked about the complex history, and yeah. you said that there's always been conflict. Yeah. A big part of that is the religious dynamic between Sunni, Shia, Shia, and Kurds. Can you break that down just so we understand a little bit more? So when it comes to the Sunni and Shias, uh, they have religious differences. The religious differences that Shia believes on the 12 imams, basically, of the grandsons or the descents of the Prophet Muhammad, the Sunnis don't. So probably, to be honest with you, they're both like very kind of similar to one another. There's just Mm -hmm. a little disagreement, pretty much, that separated the group into two. Um, when it comes to the Kurds, the Kurds, it's it's more it's not a religious issue. It's more of an ethne, ethnic issue. Mm-hmm. That the Kurds, in my opinion, are the most resilient nation I have ever seen in my life. I fought with Kurds side by my side. I used to think bad of Kurds before fighting with them, um, side by side with them, and I admired them for who they really were. The Kurds are were stripped out of their rights of their ethnicity and identity. And I don't feel, believe it's fair. I'm not a Kurd, I'm an Arab, but I do believe I'm, they're allowed to be a country. They have Kurds in Syria, Kurds in Iran, Kurds in Iraq, Kurds in Turkey. They're allowed to be a country. They're part in every country. And Turks are allowed to say they're Turks, but Kurdish are not allowed to say they're Kurds in Turkey. Um, in Iran, they are Kurds and they're not allowed to say they're Kurds. In Syria, there are Kurds. They let them say it's Kurds, but they have been non-citizen of that country most of their life. Only in the last few years, Hafid al-Assad has, not Hafid al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad, the son of Hafid al-Assad, is now the current president of Syria, finally honored the Kurdish people who were born and raised in this land, the citizenship. And it's their land too. It sucks to not be a citizen of your own land. So the Kurds are very hard-headed people. They might not make the smartest decisions possible politically, but they're friends of the mountains. It's what they do. When, they, when you, they don't agree with you, you don't agree with them, they go up to the mountains and they fight, and that's what they do. But the Kurds is more of ethnic things, and the Kurds in Iraq are actually probably the most independent out of any country because they have their own independency, they have their own thing, their own Beshmarga, their own Ministry of Defense, their own police, their own thing. And I think it's a beautiful thing, man that they're able to have something because they really could prosper. They could do things. But unfortunately, Turkey and Iran does not want these guys to be independent because they have so many Kurds. Like Turkey has 20 million of them and don't want these guys to be a problem. So unfortunately, the Kurds will find their identity eventually. And 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 they will eventually be a country, which I feel they're stripped out of that right and, and it's not fair. Yeah, you would think that acknowledging them and supporting them would be the best way to and that's what I say is less that, intentions. I would say yes, you need to support the Kurds there actually, but the Kurds trust nobody anyway because they've been burned down. Rightfully so. so. Yeah. yeah. So I would say the Kurds need to be supported. Their greatest ally. That's why I said it in the beginning. The Kurds may not have made the smartest decisions possible, right? 
because they're so hard-headed, they're fighting for their rights, and they want to fight to the end. And Turkey wants to get violent with them. Iran wants to do the same. And they're the best, actually, allies. You know why? Because they don't make any kind of a threat to the United States. They don't ever underestimate the United States. They don't ever disrespect the United States. They consider us an ally. Unfortunately, they feel betrayed. And why do you say that? Because they, you know, they get our support, and then all of a sudden, a new president comes to the office, and they pull that support off, and they're not getting anything. They're being left alone. So now they realize that they're alone. That this is politics. Nobody's going to be there for you forever. So they started more depending on themselves when it comes to that. But yeah. The Kurds, once they once you gain their trust, you're their friend. And that's how it works with them. They might not like you. They may not feel comfortable for you. But once you gain their trust, you become one of them. And they were willing to lay their life and die for you. And so Sunnis believe that someone within the dis, the lineage of Muhammad should be in control. Yeah. Shias believe that it doesn't really matter as long as you are... Yeah, so like the Shia believe, you know, that the imams should have been in control. The Sunnis believes the other side should have been in control. And I am, as a non-religious person, telling you that I think both are absolutely, absolutely historical facts that are unchecked. We don't even know right. what really went down thousands of years ago, right? Yeah. How are you able to argue on something that went down thousands and thousands of years ago? And it yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. And seeing how sometimes Iraq could have false information and lies that never happened or things like that, I'm like, what makes you think thousands of years ago everything was accurate? What makes you think that? What makes you think that that this all wasn't just an argument between two cousins, which is what it was? And I'm, I know I'm naively yeah. saying this. Yeah. But when it comes to not a significant difference. Ultimately, you're still Muslims and you believe the Islamic faith. Why does it lead to such tension and fighting? And uh, I mean, you can tell, man, it's not just religion. They were killing, killing each other way back before even Islam came in. And you have to know that uh, the history speaks for itself. You know, there was so many, so many... Uh, Wars in this area, the Mongol attack, the Mongol ripped off that country in pieces. Um, the Turks, the Ottoman Empire, the the English, the Brits, everybody has attacked that land, and there was always a conflict. And I almost feel like they'll be way too bored if they don't have anybody to kill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the truth. That's crazy. I don't think they'll ever talk about times then when they haven't been at war. Well, through the jobs you held and your time serving your country alongside Americans, you became known as the pro-American. Now you are known to the world as the terrorist whisperer. And you ultimately went from being tortured in prison at 12 years old to the greatest intelligence asset that we had in the country. I feel like you've already answered this, but... You know, what drove you to serve that bigger purpose in the face of such extreme danger? And not just for yourself, but, you know, for your family as well. I think that, you know, um, serving people is an addiction. Uh, it's a good feeling to do something to somebody without any expectation. And that 
to me, I didn't look at the Americans any different than what I had on my own team, right? I looked at everybody as my own team, my own people. And I think that the American soldiers were in the ground were a responsibility of mine to make sure these people get back to their families. And I would never forget, I had a young lieutenant standing right next to me in 2005, and he puts his wife in the phone with me. And I think he was trying to get his wife to talk to an Iraqi, right, to see what it's like. And I'm the only guys out there that speaks English, so, you know. And she realized who I was, who told her who I was. I was right next to him the whole year. And it was a bad year. We were blowing up together, doing everything. And she talked to me. She said, can I ask you something? And I said, yeah. And she said, can you promise me my husband will come home? And I think that was like the moment that hit me hard, right? It was hard to make that promise, very hard. Knowing that guy could not leave in six months. And it's possible. It happens every day. From 2003 up, this happened every single day. So when I made that promise, I said, I'm gonna promise you that as long as I'm alive. And if I'm not alive, I can't give you that promise. But as long as I'm alive, I'll make sure he's not coming anywhere near me. He's not coming near anyone at the front. Then I'll make sure that I try to block that. And, you know, I realized at the time that at the end of the day, these are people that have kids, families. They have people that care for them. I was not a guy that had people that cared for him. That's what it was for me. Um, I didn't have people that cared for me. And I just needed to... I needed to basically, I kind of knew that I was going to die in that war eventually. That somehow, sometime, somewhere, I'm going to fall down somewhere and I'm going to lay down and die. And, and the biggest worry for me, who was going to bury me, right? <laughs> who was going to be there out there for me, right? And nobody even know where my family lives. And to, to this day, actually, looking at my life and and you know how, how alone I am today in this world. And you see it, you're like, shit, I'm back in the same place. But, you know, to me, it's like, if I look back into my life and I realize I was like, service is what kept me alive. Serving others is what really made me stay in this world. And that was my purpose. So when I look at my life today and I'm just a guy that works all day, go home at the end of the day, sleep, wake up, go back to the same day. I don't talk to many people. I don't know many people. My friends are very limited. And the people I serve with, they're not anywhere nearby. So you look at things, man, and you're just like, you know what? Um, everybody has a purpose. And I said that earlier. Everybody has a purpose in this earth. And I am thankful that you could say, um, I mean, in a way, you could say that I am, you know, I am thankful that, um, I am thankful that, uh, I am thankful that, that God had chose me to be able to give this service to others. I didn't think of myself anything special of these five years of war. But I'm glad God chose me. And then it makes sense to me later in life, like, hey, if God chose you to do this for others, right? Maybe God is not so harsh on you. Maybe, maybe God is not really angry at you. Maybe you are a tool that God is using to do this. So that's why I felt that 
you know, I'm here for my purpose. And the only way that I can continue with my life is to continue with that purpose. And, um, you know, a lot of people look at my life and they see that, you know, hey, you are this big guy. You did all this. You done all this. But at the end of the day, I'm a human being. You know, I have emotions. I have my moments. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I kind of realized, you know, I was not put on this earth for other reasons. I was not put in this earth to go live in a beach house or enjoy sometimes or do things. I was put in this earth to endure the most hardest, scariest pain you could ever imagine. And if that's what God's want me to do, then that's what I will do. And that's what I'll continue to do. And my mission is right now to continue to service people, whether in business, whether it's in saving vets from combat, you know, from suicide, combat vets from suicide, losing my best friend in the last few hours had absolutely has made him took a major toll on me so that's why i was like you know it's time for me to get back to work and it's time for me to get back in the ground and try to make the best of my life try to make the best of my life and save as many until god you know decide when he will take me back um clearly god didn't take me you know, anytime soon, it didn't take me all these hard things that I went through. Clearly, um, as much as I felt that, yeah, it was my time for me to go. I have done my part and my service, and it was time for me to go. But clearly, the longer I'm staying in this earth, that I realized that I God still have a mission for me, and that God is still somehow want me to do more work. So. That's what I'm living by now. That's what I do. And uh, I'll tell you, man, being alone is peace. And I enjoy this peace, actually. And I, um, being alone is absolutely, uh, it makes you discover a lot of things about yourself. And one of my biggest fears in life is being misunderstood, you know, by people. I have a hard time communicating with people in the outside world or being misunderstood or, um, and I just going to continue to do what I do in my life and until God decides when he wants me back. And, but I do believe God has put me in this earth for more work to do. And that's what I'm going to do. I believe that as well for you. And you've done an incredible job. You're doing an incredible job in Iraq, America, in this world is better for who you are and everything you've done. You know, my podcast is still in the beginning stages, very much enjoying it. And it's kind of unbelievable to see the little progress it's, it's yeah. started to make. And with that said, uh, looking at where the listeners are and the numbers when they come in, uh, which are not... <laughs> Uh, big by any means, but I do have uh, a few people that have tuned in from Iraq. No, and so I was thinking about it, and you know, you obviously live here now. But is there anything you would like to say to those in Iraq listening, or who might listen to this in the future? I'll say that your freedom now was paid in full. 
and that do not um, do not let anybody to force things on your lives because my friends have fought and died for the purpose for you to express your opinion today. And I will say, I'm not so disappointed. The new generation of Iraq is extremely wonderful. They were able to stand up to the Iranian influence in 2019. Millions of them unarmed against an armed army um, and spoke their truth. So I think that was a relieving moment for me because you know what? That's exactly what I fought for. 20 years prior, you look into it that... If you look back into my life, the only reason I was fighting is for that the next generation of Iraq to not ever be suppressed. And how can I not be happy when I am here in the United States living a good life in peace and I realize there is thousands of people out there doing what I did alone in 2004. So... I'm actually not so disappointed. The new generation of Iraq does not look bad at me at all. They reach out. They look at me as a hero. They're appreciative. Oh, that's awesome. And it makes me happy, man. Yeah. Because I feel that my friends did not die for nothing. Mm -hmm. They absolutely died for now. I see some young men screaming through their lungs, trying to get freedom speaking freedom, want to have a good life, want to build Iraq, wants to make the place a better place, wants to lift all the trash in the ground. That is exactly the quality of a human being I was fighting for in 2004. That was yes. the one-year-old that didn't know what was happening, now making that difference. So to me, I feel like I'm relieved from that war. This was my time, this was my battle, and I did my job. 2019, they went out there fighting with no arms. They're a lot more stronger than I am because I wouldn't have showed up to that enemy with no guns. They did. Man, so, I'm so glad you said that Yeah, because I know even back in 2005, you know, Iraq held its first full-term elections and there have been some since, but it's a work in progress like any nation. And, you know, ISIS came onto the scene and then they were defeated and then they kind of stuck around. So to hear now that you feel like they're in a better place and they're, they're moving towards progress and, and even brighter and better days, you know, it's, I'm so thankful for that, for them, for Iraq, but it's also really going to help just to hear you say that yeah. all of the American veterans that gave so much, you know, in Iraq that probably wonder, like you're saying, you know, was it worth it? Are they better now? And is what we fought and died for, you know, did that pay off? It did pay off big time. And you got a new Iraqi generation that completely think different with a different mentality that absolutely positive. They don't have any anger towards the West. They're good people. They wake up every day to make Iraq a better place, regardless of the enemy and the Iranian influence that are controlling everything in the top. But I can assure my enemies in Iraq, your places and your chairs will not be there long. Soon this generation is, is evolving itself and will take you off the ground and throw you off the cliff in no time. Because if you fought 
few hamities or one hamity back in 2004. Today you have millions of hamities that are popping at you from left and right. Good luck with that. Hamity, this has been incredible. It's, it's my pleasure. And um, thank you very much for having me in your podcast as well. And you came in to be in mine. And it's uh, been a great, a great uh, day. Uh, I think it's a lot we could have learned from you as well. Well, I appreciate that, and I'm very grateful for our new friendship. Absolutely. And um, I look forward to many more conversations to for come. Sure. For but, sure. Uh, thank you for everything. It's my pleasure, brother, and, and it's the least I can do. Uh, and uh, as I said, my mission is to save as many people as I can. And after losing my good friend Matt, I am going to war. Um, with this problem I'm going to go to war to save as many people as possible and I no longer want to lose friends let me know if you need a marine by your side Uh, I'll be honored (laughs) hey well uh, before we wrap up remember check out Hamity's book and documentary on Amazon Prime both are called The Terrace Whisper and his podcast which is called The Black Side Show the Black Sight Show. Sight, S-I-T-E. So it's The Black Sight Show. And you can find us anywhere. Amazon. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, um, anywhere you want. Any radio platform you have, you can you find us. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. See you next time.